0: Most will use power produced by coal. Uh, Coal, to use the economist's euphemism, is fraught with externalities, the heavy cost it imposes on society. It's the dirtiest, most lethal energy source we have, but by most measures it's also the cheapest, and we depend on it. So the big question today isn't whether coal can ever be clean. It can't. It's whether coal can ever be clean enough to prevent not only local disasters, but also a radical change in global climate. Of course, Utah is among the top coal-producing states, and a large percentage of our electricity comes from coal, so these issues are very present for us. Michelle Nyhouse is an award-winning writer on science and the environment. She is a contributing writer for Smithsonian, National Geographic, uh, High Country uh, News, and uh, very interestingly, uh, she and her family, at least for several years, lived off the grid, and she joins me by telephone. Michelle Nyhaus, welcome to the program.
1: Hi Tom, thanks so much for having
0: me. We appreciate. I also you. lived
1: in a coal mining town.
0: <laughs> oh, you did. Interesting. At the same
1: time that I lived off the grid, uh, so
0: this, um, this was in a yeah. uh
1: coming at this from a pretty uh, kaleidoscopic perspective.
0: Uh, you and you recently moved. Are you are you still living off the grid or what? Uh...
1: No, I'm uh, benefiting from the hydropower of the Great Northwest. I live in Washington State in the Columbia okay, River Gorge, okay. but uh, for the past 15 years, I lived um, almost in your listening area um, in western Colorado.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, very interesting when we get into talking about coal, of course, and, and it, of great interest to the United States, of course, China. Utah is one of the uh, you know top coal-producing states and coal-consuming states, so very interesting to uh, people in Utah. Uh, I wanted to just uh, touch brief on this and maybe get back to it later in the program. Uh, I'm always fascinated by, by people who, I consider this to be sort of uh, putting your uh, lifestyle where your beliefs are. I don't know if that was the impetus for you and, and your family going off the grid. But it, you uh, you were featured uh, on the uh, periodic uh, series for Public Radio Burn. We've had a few episodes on, here on, on UPR. And uh, you said that sometimes you kind of keep it on the down low because you say many consider living off the grid to be somewhere between bizarre and unimaginable.
1: <laughs> I did say that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, people think it's strange. Um, but and, and I should back up and say that, as I said earlier, I no longer live off the grid, but for 15 years I did live completely off the grid, um, though I did travel and stay in hotels Mm-hmm. We're very much connected to the grid but when I was at home I was off the grid um, and when I talked about it I, you know when I would go to conferences in big cities and talk about it to my fellow conference goers uh, people would think often think it was pretty strange they would, it was sort of like saying you lived in a tent um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had to explain no I have hot water and I have plenty of power to run my laptop and most of the time I don't have to think about the fact that I live off the grid um, and it's it's actually not that difficult to do. Uh,
0: So uh, was there a a change in the perception over time, do you think, over those 15 years?
1: Um, I mean, perhaps, yeah. Um, People still thought it was pretty strange at the end of those 15 years, but I think there was maybe a little more familiarity with the idea because there have been state incentives for people to put solar panels on their roofs and that kind of thing. Um, I think more people can say, oh, I know someone who's at least, if not living completely off the grid, I know someone who gets part of their energy supply from renewables.
0: Hmm. And you're saying it's not not that difficult. How how did you do it?
1: Uh, Well, it wasn't that difficult for me. It was pretty difficult for my husband who built our house. (laughs) Um, So I benefited from his expertise, but um, we did it originally both because we thought renewables were a good idea and because the place where we could afford to buy land was not served by the grid, so we really had no choice but to use some sort of um, grid-independent power source. Hmm. And we used solar panels because there's a lot of sun in Colorado. Um, but I also I lived in a town that whose economy was very much supported by coal and coal mining, so I have a pretty visceral sense of how important the coal industry is to people's livelihoods. Um, I also, you know, before we lived off the grid, my house was powered by coal, and I shoveled coal into the into the boiler um, in the basement of my house. So oh. I, it was important to me then, and I know it remains important to me in many aspects of my life. And I also have a visceral sense of how dangerous that job still is to many
0: people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it has a personal connection with me, too. Growing up, uh, we had a, you know, coal furnace. So I, I shoveled mm-hmm. coal uh, mm-hmm. in, into the furnace, you know, and, uh, and yep. we'd, we'd get deliveries of coal to, to, you know, to, to the backyard and, and such.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, in the 15 years I lived in western Colorado, when I first moved there, our little town would smell of coal smoke uh, in the winter. Yeah. Um, and then it no longer did when I left because so many people had switched to natural gas. So that was a really distinct
0: change that I saw. Yeah, we, we had that experience as well. Later on, it became harder and harder to find a supplier of coal. And uh, uh-huh. now, now my parents <laughs> yeah. are on natural gas. So that's, I guess, we okay. followed that trajectory. Uh, so, but you say that um, maybe this is a, a starting place. Hundreds of millions of people don't have electricity, Uh, and if they're going to get electricity, a lot of those people, if current trends continue, they're going to get it from coal.
1: That's right. Um, For a lot of people, coal is still one of the cheapest, if not the cheapest, most convenient energy source or source of power, source of electrical power that they have.
0: And so while it's sort of declining a bit in the U.S. just because of the natural gas is so cheap right now, mm-hmm. other, like China, they're really ramping up their, their production and consumption of, of coal.
1: Yes, and um, you know, it's easy, as I believe I say in the story, it's when you live in the U.S., it's easy to think of coal as a fuel of the past, um, you know, though we still use plenty of coal. But uh, if you go to China, if you go to India, if you go to many other places in the world, um, it is certainly not the fuel of the past.
0: Hmm. And this is, the uh, I think it's probably the dirtiest form of of energy. It's one of the most lethal. I wonder if you could talk about, uh, you uh, begin your article going back to the past. Uh, uh, You quote a a gentleman from, I'm not sure, this is the beginning of the industrial age or somewhere in the industrial age. He talks about, he complains about the coal covering, the dust covering everything.
1: Yeah, it didn't take long uh, for people to start complaining about coal <laughs> after we started using it for power um, I mean I think we've always known since we've been burning coal that um, it brings wonderful benefits um, and you know makes makes life possible in, in many ways life as we know it possible uh, but it also has a lot of negatives um, air pollution being one of the most noticeable mm. um, to, to your you know to the urban dweller Uh, But there are, of course, many other negatives, and and I think the the most complex and wide-ranging one we're dealing with now is the carbon problem of
0: Yeah. Well, we'll get to carbon very shortly. Uh, You you remind us, and I'd forgotten about this, in fact this was an impetus for the Clean Air Act. Could you tell us about, uh, did you pronounce it Denora?
1: Denora, Uh, yeah. There was a disaster in um, Denora, Pennsylvania, where a coal pollution from a coal smelter um, because of the local weather conditions ended up uh, killing a number of people and sickening, you know, a, a large proportion of the town. And that, I mean, it was a very a very dramatic um, demonstration of, of how coal could affect, you know, not just the, the people who are directly, Pulling it out of the ground, and certainly those people are, are are very very important. But it could also affect people who just happen to be living nearby um, a place where coal was being used, um, where coal was being burned, and so that indirectly um, that disaster led to the passage of the Clean Air Act.
2: Yeah,
0: you, you set the scene. I think it's a football game, and and this. cloud descends on people you can't even see the game Uh, some people died Uh, a lot of the town got sick
1: yes a big uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly a third of the town was hospitalized or sickened yeah Um, yeah, and it, it I mean it if you read the stories of that that weekend that particular weekend where those Pennsylvania residents were got so sick they were used to a certain level of air pollution and They were sitting there watching a football game and suddenly realized they couldn't really see the players that well anymore. They couldn't really see the ball, and they started thinking, huh, this—I mean, we always have bad air, but this seems a little worse than usual. And, um, you know, within a few days, they had lost a lot of their neighbors, and, and many of them were hospitalized.
0: There are a couple of pictures in this, and of course, National Geographic, famous for their, their photographs. Uh, by the way, this uh, issue comes out on March 25th, I believe, uh, and it's the cover cover story, I believe, on uh, coal. Can coal ever Actually, be...
1: there's a beautiful hedgehog on the cover, but oh, okay. uh, <laughs> there's some incredible uh, photos inside the
0: magazine. Y- yes, yes. And, I'm, and, and that's what I'm talking about, that one of the photographs inside, I've got a, a copy pulled up here, and... Um, by the way we're we're talking with Michelle uh, Nyhouse. she's author of this article c- coming in the uh, April edition of National Geographic can o- coal ever be clean is the title this is a photograph from china shozhou uh, china and it, it looks like a sunny day but it's but it looks like a cloudy day because of the the pollution which i i guess is from coal there's a stylish woman checking her messages and then in the foreground a a woman who's covering her face with her coat, I guess to try to get away from the pollution.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and uh, anyone who's traveled to China uh, will know that if you visit any urban area in China you can smell coal. Um, depending on the weather conditions, you can it can be seem like beautiful clear air, but it can also be, you know, impossible to see to the end of the block. Hmm. So it's it's very dramatic. And, and people in China, urban dwellers and rural dwellers are increasingly worried and discontented about air pollution, um, you know, because that's a much more immediate problem that one they experience every day rather than carbon pollution. Um, and so I think the Chinese government is getting quite serious about dealing with air pollution and increasingly serious about dealing with carbon pollution as mm-hmm. well.
0: Uh, So there's uh, some statistics in your story, Uh, 21% of global fossil fuel carbon dioxide comes from uh, burning natural gas, 35% from oil, 44% from coal.
1: Yes. Yes, so coal is a huge proportion of uh, global carbon emissions, and that's why I think and still think it's it's so important to look at, at how we can reduce carbon pollution from coal. Hmm.
0: Now you traveled to um, a plant—is this in West Virginia? That, that thats right. Ironically, Mountaineer had, plant, yeah, had been <laughs> capturing carbon, but had st- and in fact had visitors from around the world to, to see the success story. Uh, they've stopped doing that. Why?
1: Well, I think the Mountaineer experiment was a really uh, dramatic, telling example of. The need for regulation or legislation um, that will require reductions in carbon pollution um, from coal plants, because Mountaineer uh, thought that it seemed like in 2009, when this experiment was going to, was begun, that Congress was about to pass um, some sort of carbon limits. Um, so Mountaineer wanted to get ahead of the curve. They put in a small-scale carbon capture and carbon storage system on its plant. Um, this was, at the time, considered groundbreaking to have you know, capture and storage happening right there at the coal plant. People came from around, around the world to see it, Chinese engineers, environmentalists, all sorts of people. Um, their, the plant manager, Charlie Powell, was a classic Character could talk to anyone. He's since passed away, unfortunately. But um, you know, he was he was skeptical of the experiment, but also really curious about it. Loved to talk to people, so he was a, a wonderful guide to it. And um, then the bill. So everything went well. The experiment went well. And then the bill uh, died in Congress. And Mountaineer pulled out of the project. There was going to be a second stage, and, and Mountaineer pulled out. Um, because they could not pass the costs of that experiment onto their ratepayers, um, mm. The state would not allow them to do that. So um, for economic reasons, they pulled out. And so I think, you know, these systems, reducing carbon pollution from coal is not cheap. It's not simple. It's not a technology that's going to, at least not as it stands now, it's not going to make money for the industry. It's not going to increase the efficiency of coal plants. Um, it's something that we need. Legislation and regulation in order to get in place, in order to be, and and in order to start learning by doing um, and and, um, jump starting innovation with these technologies as we put them in place. Mm.
0: Uh, We are talking with Michelle Nyhaus. She's an award winning environmental science writer. Uh, Her uh, current story on coal is uh, in the April edition of National Geographic and uh, that i believe was the cover story some very impactful photos there and an uh, interesting story by Michelle Nyehouse we're talking about coal of great interest to uh, us in utah because uh, we're one of the top coal producers that has sort of it, it's trending downward that coal production in utah but we're still among the top coal producers uh and uh, some statistics i was reading I don't know if I can trust these completely, but at the latest I saw some 79% of Utah's energy comes from coal. At least it's a very high percentage that, uh, that comes from coal. So great interest uh, if you're a you know, citizen of the world and a citizen of Utah as well. You're welcome to join this conversation. We're asking you what you think of this. Uh, can coal ever be clean enough? That's the key question that Michelle Nyhouse asked in her article. Can alternative energy sources handle growing demand if we're going to do something else? Can Utah pivot away from coal and still meet demand? I think Utah's energy plan uh, is mandating or suggesting, at least, uh, that we go to alternatives for at least 20 percent of our energy by 2020. Colorado's, I think, is an even higher percentage that they're suggesting, 30 percent or something. A lot of states, I think. Uh, and, of course, there's going to have to be something happened in China. We'll talk about that as well. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, one 826 1495 Or you can join us uh, by our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Or join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where we've got an up-close, beautiful photograph. This is from National Geographic. Not from this edition, but uh, another uh, story of a, of a piece of coal. And uh, if you can ever make a piece of coal look beautiful, uh, this photographer has. Um, and uh, Charles Ashurst has commented here, and this would be a good uh, place to bring this in. We shall... Uh, and uh, Charles writes, I think energy markets could do a good job of sorting out whether coal or whether renewable energy, for that matter, makes sense, provided you account for all the costs within energy markets, including your greenhouse gas emission costs, including your lost opportunity costs resulting from a transition from fossil carbon energy to renewables. And then he goes on to say, real Republicans would have gotten this done a decade ago. Instead of building an penetrable fortress around a stance, if you can't trust climate uh, science. I have nothing against Republicans. Bring on some Republicans. We need them. That's a comment from Charles Asherist uh, on our Facebook page. So the the costs. what do you think about uh, accounting for all of the costs?
1: Well, I think, I, sh- I mean, as I say in the story, the whole... When we say that coal is the cheapest energy source, um, it may be cheapest in dollar terms, but there are, you know, huge human, environmental, and climate costs that are not built into the price of coal. Um, And certainly if those were added in, uh, renewables would, you know, not that renewables don't have their own um, externalized costs, but um, they would it would look like a much better deal when lined up against coal if, if all those costs were accounted
0: for. Hmm. Um, and the process—I wonder if you could go through the through the process. And this seemed like uh, what what got me thinking about this was Charles's uh, comment about Republicans. And I, as I was reading your article and reading about how at least the Mountaineer captured carbon, um, I was thinking this is this is science fictiony. I'm amazed that they're able to do this. <laughs> And then, I, and then I pictured, you know, right-wing talk radio. They got a hold of this. If you come from a premise that, uh, you know, carbon is not a problem at all, um, well, I guess apart from that, and listeners can comment on that, could you take us through the process, at least how Mountaineer captures
2: carbon?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, let me just back up slightly and say that the term clean coal has been used um, for a long time by the coal industry, and I think um, has— done all of us and the industry a disservice, um, the industry itself a disservice by overstating uh, the potential to clean up coal. Um, You know, obviously, if you know anything about coal, if you've been near the industry or inside the industry, you know that um, the term clean coal is nonsense. There are going to be environmental costs. Of coal, um, no matter how carefully you do it, you mine coal or produce power from coal, um, or what kind of technology you use, there are going to be costs. That said, um, you know I've, I've covered climate change for many years, and I, I am convinced that we do need to reduce carbon pollution from coal um, as part of a larger strategy to reduce the carbon. Global carbon problem. Um, So there are ways to do, there are ways to produce cleaner coal power, not clean coal power, but cleaner coal power. And one of those is to capture the CO2 um, from, capture and separate it from the other products of uh, coal combustion at the coal plant, uh, compress CO2, um, and store it underground. I won't say permanently um, because no one knows if that's possible but in certainly indefinitely um, and there are a couple of places where we have stored co2 um, for many many years with no problems um, underground and in, in Canada and Norway and uh, North Africa and so the, the capture the separation of co2 from from the rest of the products of, of coal combustion that is perhaps the certainly the most expensive and perhaps the most complex part of the process, and, and that's what... You know, the nation, the, the U.S. government has invested several billion dollars over the last 20 years in, in research on carbon capture and carbon storage, and while I would never argue that these are perfect technologies, uh, that these are simple technologies or fail-safe technologies. Engineers and scientists have learned a lot in those twenty years, and, and they are able to do some pretty impressive things. We've tested carbon capture and storage at, at small scales and in, in a few cases at large scales. Um, and what I what I heard from every person I talked to, every engineer and scientist, was that we need to start testing these at larger scales. We need to put them, to, you know, we need we need commercial scale tests of these technologies. We, we think we're far enough along. We know we're far enough along that that's, that's what we need to do now to get these technologies doing what they're supposed to do, which is emit, reduce emissions from coal plants. Hmm.
0: We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we have a caller um, on the line, and we'll go to our caller. And also, uh, following that, ask uh, Michelle Nyhaus about the uh, IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change. Their carbon budget and they t- talk about this in their most recent report, which came out uh, just a few months ago. We've burned through, I don't know, half of our budget. And uh, projections are we'll, you know, we'll, we'll exceed that budget in just a few years. And so um, carbon capture and storage becomes even more important under that uh, circumstance. We'll talk about that and more with Michelle Nyhaus. She's an award-winning environmental writer. Uh, her uh, article on coal is the uh, cover article for the April edition of National Geographic. More with Michelle Nyhaus following the break.
3: Did you know that approximately 75% of students who receive mental health services get these services in school settings? School psychologists and school counselors are key mental health providers who help teachers and families maximize students' active engagement in learning and strengthen their personal, academic, and social
0: development. Did You Know That? is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at
4: cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the City of St. George, presenting the 35th Annual St. George Arts Festival. April 18th and 19th in the Town Square in Historic St. George. Information at sgartfestival.com. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West and Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday beginning at 7 a.m., featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or a ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. You're listening to Access Utah.
0: I'm Tom Williams. My guest is award-winning science and environmental writer Michelle Nyehouse. She writes the cover story for the April edition of National Geographic. It's titled, Can Coal Ever Be Clean? And, of course, that's the the, uh, sort of the catchy title. Michelle Nyehouse says the real question is, uh, no, it can't be clean, but can it be clean enough? It's the dirtiest of fossil fuels. We burn 8 billion tons of it a year. With the growing consequences, the world must face that question. Coal provides 40% of the world's electricity, provides 39% of global carbon dioxide emissions, kills thousands of years in mines, many more in polluted air. Uh, but it's cheap and plentiful. And likely, uh, some, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are going to receive electricity for the first time. Much of that, under current trends, will come from coal. We're talking about the subject on uh, the program today. You can reach us at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com or join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And we do have a uh, caller. Let's go to our caller uh, next. Go ahead with your question or comment.
3: Oh, yeah. Good morning, this is uh, A.J. calling from uh, Southern California. Uh, Back in the uh, 80s in grad school, I worked on a a solar thermal project, and the idea was to try to be able to collect thermal solar energy at about the same price as a a barrel of oil. And we were successful to a a degree then. Unfortunately, the project was canceled. The occupant of the White House at the time, as some may remember, was President Reagan. Uh, So, we weren't working in an area that uh, he really wanted to support. The answer to the other question, can you basically do clean coal, it really is no. Uh, from cradle to grave, coal is, 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 is highly toxic, nasty material, uh, same with, with fracking. It's essentially, the, carbon, the carbon-based energies are, by and large, difficult to deal with because you know from the time you mine them out of the ground refine them, transport them, and then ultimately burn them, uh, you're releasing toxic materials to the environment in one form or another. And at at the end, you end up with what is now uh, the commonplace of of discussion in in the media, coal fly or coal ash, which is a concentration of these relatively small amounts of toxic heavy metals, things like cadmium, lead, mercury, arsenic, others, uh, that are now concentrated down, and what do you do with it? Well, if you're Duke Energy, you put it in ponds. So do a lot of other outfits. Uh, in the Midwest, it's rather popular to be given to road uh, crews to spread on the roadways as as uh, a means to decrease uh, the slipperiness of, <laughs> of winter. And so what do you do with that stuff? You, you dump tons and tons and tons of this stuff, and you now are finding these uh, highly toxic materials back into the environment. Uh, It's runoff, they end up in streams feeding rivers, they leach into the soil, and, you know, gosh, if you're growing crops in that region and those plants, a lot of them, rice, for example, sucks everything out of the soil, this is why we've got the problem with arsenic in certain parts of the country that Consumer Reports did a landmark uh, review of last year, I think it was. Uh, This is what you do, whereas at Earth level, on the surface, where we live, the Earth receives from the sun in an hour more energy than the entire human race consumes in a calendar year. You look it up for yourself. So the problem is one of uh, collecting that free energy. The source cost is zero. Collecting it, converting it to something useful, and being able to hold onto it long enough so that you can use it when, for example, the sun is not shining or in the term, terms of wind when the wind's not blowing. Recently, it was reported uh, by a young research team a, a new variation on a battery, some, something akin to a fuel cell, sort of a, a single cell that you pack charge into uh, across different layers, such as, say, lithium-ion batteries that uh, may or may not have been implicated in the most recent airliner disaster, You've got basically two fuels external to the to the reaction chamber. Uh, they supply the, the, the materials, the plant-based, incidentally, to the reactor cell. And you've got a battery, a, a fuel cell, if you will, uh, from very inexpensive, non-toxic materials, easily available, dirt cheap, and it works. Bottom line is we are very clever species, we can come up with lots and lots of ideas, and w- and yet rather than looking toward, or rather through the 21st century, to technologies that will that can carry us on uh, through our time remaining on the planet, I mean that quite literally, you know, several hundreds of millions or billions of years until life on the planet will essentially no longer be possible because the, the sun will age, expand, and consume the earth. Uh, we seem to be looking backwards towards technologies of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, and we can do an awful lot better than that. So that's my observation. Thanks for taking
0: my call. Okay. Thanks, A.J. Appreciate that. Um, uh, so, uh, Michelle Nighouse, uh, I wonder, just sort of extrapolating from what A.J. Uh, said, uh, and the question I had in the back of my mind was, uh, why don't we just – as fast as we can get away from coal and really ramp up renewables
1: yeah good question um, one of the engineers I talked to uh, Sally Benson who's a researcher at Stanford uh, perhaps put it best where she said this is a time when we have to be thinking about and we can't be thinking about ors so meaning that we really are not are no longer we no longer have a choice <laughs> Um, the carbon problem is so big that we have to think about reducing carbon pollution from coal right now in the short term um, because we can't switch to renewables tomorrow. Um, the technology is not there. Simply, there's just so much inertia in the system. It's going to take years for us to make that transition. We can't continue to keep pumping carbon into the air from coal plants um, while we make that transition. So we need to look at cleaner coal. Not clean coal. <laughs> I, I certainly, you know, I'm aware of and understand all the problems that A.J. enumerated, um, and I don't want to minimize those in any way. But we need to look at reducing carbon pollution from coal plants and we need to invest heavily in innovation and development of renewables, and we need to look at reducing demand for electricity um, at all levels, and we need to be exporting these technologies, renewable technologies and cleaner coal technologies, advanced coal technologies, to countries um, that uh, where many people are getting electricity for the first time and are looking to coal as a cheap and available source of energy.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk about this uh, IPCC uh, carbon budget. Um and 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 by some accounts, uh, I think reading in your story, uh, we're going to have to start not capturing small percentages of carbon, but uh, it's gonna it's gonna have to be very high percentages of carbon moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and I mean one of the one of the reasons why uh, advanced coal technologies are attractive in in terms of a carbon budget are that if you put if you outfit a plant with carbon capture and storage capability, you have taken a big chunk of carbon emissions. Um, You know, you've kept a big chunk of carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, It's just, while these are expensive and complex technologies, um, you can get a lot of carbon, keep a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere um, in one fell swoop, as opposed to marketing and selling a bunch of hybrid vehicles or electric vehicles where, you know, you're making one sale at a time and then making an incremental effect. Um, you're, with carbon capture and storage, you're dealing with one point, one large point source at a time. Mm. So that's why... Um, Another reason why advanced coal technology is attractive in terms of uh, carbon budget, but you know the the American Association for the Advancement of Science um, came out with a report lat, just last week called "What You What We Know," and it was really a summary of what we know about climate change and um, and the risks and the response. And, and one of their big take homes was that the sooner we act, the lower the risk and cost. Um, this is not. You know, a black and white situation where we say we either act or don't act, it's a question of how much our risks and our costs are going to increase the longer we wait. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's an argument for starting now, starting to clean up the technologies we have while we are developing cleaner, more efficient, renewable technologies uh, that will take us into the
0: future. One example that stood out to me from the story, I can't remember which of the experts you talked to brought this up. Um, capturing the carbon dioxide from a single 1,000-megawatt coal plant would be equivalent to 2.8 million people trading in pickups for Priuses. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, and that goes back to um, what I was – the example – I or the argument I mentioned for uh, installing a carbon capture and – and sequestration system on a coal plant, you that adds up to a lot of Priuses and you can arguably install a carbon capture system and, and storage system um, a little bit more easily than you can market 2.8 million Priuses.
0: Now, so the te- the technology is there. Is 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 that the the case? I, I'm reading about gasification. It's it's easier to capture carbon if you if you turn coal into a gas form. There's something you talked about called chemical looping as well, it, but it mm-hmm. seems like the problem is making it economically viable, and and that's where government needs to step in. Is that the case?
1: That's yes. That's what I heard from. Everyone I talked to on every side <laughs> of the issue, they said we certainly the technology is not perfect. There are many advances that need to be made in terms of efficiency and reliability and so forth. But we need to industry needs an incentive to put these technologies in place, and and there are we need to start testing these and looking at these technologies at a commercial scale um, so that we can further improve them. And and if you think back to the 1990s when we were thinking about sulfur dioxide and, and acid rain um, and the U.S. government put a cap-and-trade system in place to induce the, in, induce the industry to install scrubbers in their smokestacks, um, there was... A very similar conversation going on where the coal industry said oh this is going to kill our industry these requirements are, are really going to hurt us and instead what we saw was a real explosion of innovation and um, creativity that reduced the cost of those technologies and you know solved a major environmental problem that was affecting everyone you know including people who work who make their living inside the coal industry so uh, I think while I want to emphasize that carbon capture and sequestration is a much trickier technology, It's um, and certainly climate change is a much bigger and more complex problem than acid rain. There are precedents, there are encouraging precedents out there.
0: Uh, as you write in your article, China apparently is ramping up this idea of cap-and-trade.
1: Yes, um, China is ch- is testing... Some cap and trade style approaches, um, just on a regional scale, at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, Ch- China, I think, is is the biggest culprit right now in polluting the the, the atmosphere right. from coal.
1: They, that's right. They uh, took that dubious honor from from us uh, several years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if I could step back just a little bit from the from the, from the climate change, from carbon, from uh, CO two just back to you know the air pollution. And we've all seen the pictures from Beijing and, and other Chinese cities where, you know, it looks like night and it's the middle of day. Um, what do you think would be happening there? Just, just cleaning up the air. From the, and the big culprit there is coal, right?
1: Yes. Um, that's when you see those pictures of Beijing, um, most of that air pollution is caused by uh, coal, burning coal. And I traveled to China for this story, and it's... You know, air pollution is a reality that everyone lives with and that people are increasingly outraged about. Um, you know, there is, despite China's reputation um, for political repression, there's a, a strong tradition of local demonstrations and, and um, people speaking out. Um, and you know making their complaints known and, and that's happening both in urban and rural areas people are really up in arms about air quality um, it's affecting their day-to-day lives it's affecting their kids they can see that and so the government is taking it very ser- taking air pollution very seriously and they are um, they're really the world leaders on um, these ultra efficient and super efficient coal plants um, so they, they and that, you know, indirectly makes a dent in the carbon problem because if you have a, you know, if you're making more power with less coal, your your carbon footprint is, is reduced somewhat. So even though their, their main concern, their primary concern right now is air pollution, um, what they're doing to address it is having some effect on their uh, carbon footprint. Hmm.
0: Now, AJ gave us a pep talk. He said, uh, yeah. "We can we can ramp up renewables. We can do this. We uh, technology is coming down the the pike." From the experts you're talking to, and, and the need to, you know, capture carbon, um, and, and I guess alongside renewables and everything. Would you come away hopeful about this?
2: Um,
1: I come away daunted but hopeful. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, but, you know, I agree with everything AJ said, um, but I think that that's not enough. Uh, I think that, yes, we need to invest wholeheartedly in in renewables, but I also think that, um, you know, ignoring the enormous and continuing carbon footprint of coal power is not to our benefit. Hmm.
0: Now, uh, President Obama recently uh, made an important announcement um he he is announcing that by June of this year the EPA will draft new rules that quoting him and quoting uh, from your article will put an end to the limitless dumping of carbon pollution from our power plants plants uh, are we on track with that and what what do you think those rules are likely to look like
1: Um those rules are now open for public comment your listeners should know that um the EPA is is taking public comment on what those rules should look like I know that they are being feverishly formulated right now, those draft rules um, in Washington, and that the Obama administration has made getting those rules in place a major priority of the second term. Um, I think they have enormous implications, um, both here and worldwide, because if we are, excuse me, as I've been saying, regulation is, and legislation is what's needed to get these cleaner coal technologies in place on a commercial scale—it's what's needed to um, force the industry to invest in these technologies, which do cost money. Um, if they are, if they do start to be put in place, I think we're going to see innovation. We're going to see um, these technologies be ready for export to countries that don't have the resources to develop them themselves. So I think, you know, these rules sound may sound arcane, may sound wonky, but they may end up being the most significant thing to date that the U.S. government has done for climate change, which is not a very high bar, but it, um, these, these could be um, very significant and could be a great first step.
0: And by the way, I just, uh, I just pulled up uh, EPA.gov. and uh, Actually, I Googled uh, EPA and, and carbon standards and, uh, and mm-hmm. came, came up, uh, and our listeners could do the same and, and go and look at those proposed rules. And there are public listening sessions being held around the, around the country as well. I just want yeah. to, to perhaps end of sort of where we began, just a couple of minutes left here, uh, and bring it down to personal level. We were talking about government and, uh, and industry what can you and I do to make things better? Should we, you know, not that everybody has to live off the grid. You're, you're saying it can mm-hmm. be done. What what would you suggest?
1: Well, um, you know, like I said, one of the reasons why we're talking about government and industry and so forth is that um, they can take, they, you know, they can make big, significant dents in, in the global carbon problem with, you know, one action, with one project. Um, you know, the rest of us who don't, who's, are holding, um, you know, somewhat smaller levers can't make as big of a difference with our individual choices. Um, that said, being one of the 2.8 million Priuses <laughs> on the road that, um, you know, if we use the statistic of 2.8 million Priuses being equal to the carbon emissions of um, a single coal plant. It's not insignificant to be one of those 2.8 million Priuses because if you... If you you know, if you are reducing your carbon footprint, that's less carbon going into the atmosphere. And I think it's also, uh, you know, I would say it's, it personally makes me happier <laughs> to feel like I'm I'm living in alignment with the values that I've gained from doing the reporting that I've done and discovering and witnessing the things that I've seen as a reporter. Um, it makes me happy to be um, demonstrating that to my my five-year-old daughter um, who knows what it's already knows what it's like to live off the grid so I, I think you know while while we have relatively less power just in terms of our own carbon emissions and our ability to affect them um, those actions are they matter in a lot of ways that we aren't even aware of when we're doing them
0: we have been talking with Michelle Nyhouse. She's an award-winning environmental and science writer. She contributes to Smithsonian, National Geographic, High Country News. Uh, her latest article, Can Coal Ever Be Clean?, is the cover story for the April edition of National Geographic. Michelle Nyehouse, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: We'll pick up some of these themes on Thursday. We're going to be talking about climate change with a scientist uh, who's a member of the IPCC uh, panel. And we'll also involve our state climatologist, Rob Gillis, in that discussion. Hopefully, you as well. Tomorrow, we'll have our periodic book show. Lane Thatcher will be with us, and we'll be looking for your latest book list. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.
4: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing. 630 West, 200 North, in Logan, for personalized printing for your home or business, including wedding announcements, thank you cards, and family histories. Information at squareoneprinting.com. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton.
2: Recently, there was a reunion of sorts for the Beatles. It happened during a program commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. The program, The Night That Changed America, a Grammy salute to the Beatles, was a tribute to the Fab Four, and two of the Beatles were there to take it in. Toward the end of the show, Paul McCartney stood on stage singing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and when he sang Let Me Introduce to You the One and Only Billy Shears, Ringo Starr ran out on stage. It was a moment I had been waiting for since before the Bee Gees were on the radio. It was a glorious thing. Even though Paul and Ringo look strangely older now and didn't sing it breath for breath like I do when I sing along with the album, it was a Beatles reunion. Some say it doesn't count because John and George could not be there. It counts. I have had a special tie to the Beatles my entire life because I know that if I had been born in a different time and place, and had showed up with talent, looks, charisma, connections, and an English accent. I could have been one of the Beatles. I was that close. I remember when I first heard of the Beatles. I asked my uncle, who knew about such things, what he could tell me about this strange group. He told me it was an unusual band, and that some people liked it and its music so much, that if they ended up in the band's presence, they would scream and pass out. I found that to be a very frightening thought and wondered if I would be at risk if I ever bumped into them at the grocery store at church. I was eight years old. The way I understood it, if you pass out, your body just slumps over and your head smacks against whatever happens to be in the area. At first, I was opposed to the Beatles. I must have kept this reaction thing a secret from my parents because I know that we watched the Beatles debut on the Ed Sullivan show. We were in a relatively soft place, seated on our sofa as we watched, and I really wanted to see what would happen. Since my dad viewed long hair much like some people today view cross-dressing, I couldn't imagine him screaming and passing out the minute they began to play still seemed like it would be cool to see him do that if I didn't pass out first. We soon discovered that watching them on TV did not produce the hysteria that apparently happened to people in their presence. We could see their frenzied reaction on television. It was troubling. It made me worry about what would happen if they were ever introduced to the president. Back in the Cold War days, having the president of the United States scream like a girl and pass out would have been a very bad thing. Later, it was a friend who taught me how to properly appreciate the Beatles, He was a quiet, patient teenager who had a clean room and a unique way of presenting their music. I remember when he purchased the White Album. He invited me over, gave me an introduction, like he was an academic about to present a paper, and then he gently put the needle on the album, on the first track, and we would listen from beginning to end. There was no screaming or even talking aloud. He acted like he was one of only a handful of people in the world who could appreciate the music he had personally discovered. It made me want to be a Beatle even more. I've thought a lot about how my life would have been different if I could have been one of them. I worry I might have wrecked things. I could see us working a hard day's night and deciding we were ready to go home. Right about then, my tendency to rewrite everything would kick in, and I would say, Hold it, lads! That's how English people talk. I don't think we're done yet. Look, I don't want to be critical, but listen to what we just recorded. I would have George Martin cue up the song, Come Together. Here come old flat top, he come grooving up slowly, he got juju eyeball, he won holy roller, he got hair down to his knee, got to be a joker, he just do what he please. He got juju eyeballs, I would say, in an exasperated voice. What the heck are juju eyeballs? Come on! Do you guys want to be the legendary Beatles, or do you just want to be the regular Beatles? We have to fix that. We can't just phone this in, guys. We have a brand position to maintain. And they would all give me that look they first gave me when I suggested we write something instead of yeah, yeah, yeah over and over in the song She Loves You. I would just push ahead. And there are typos everywhere in that song. He won Holy Roller. That should be he is one Holy Roller. Come on, guys, we're better than this. We're not just some dumb yokels. Oh, then John would get really mad and they would have kicked me out of the band before I even had a chance to keep them from breaking up. I would have ended up standing alone on a hill with orders to stand perfectly still so no one would notice me. So it's probably better I was never a mop top, better for the world. I've grown to love the music and the words they wrote. The Beatles are truly a remarkable band, and seeing Paul and Ringo playing together was a great moment in human history. One day recently, I started asking people who their favorite Beatle was, and two people said they weren't familiar with their music, and a third said she, she didn't care for their music kids these days. It makes me want to scream and pass out. Just let me go over to the sofa first. I'm almost 64, you know. This is Steve Eaton. ¶¶